0: As we continue to move forward in our study in the book of John, I trust that what's happening in your heart as is in mine, an increasing awareness of the fact that Jesus intends to draw a very clear line between what it is to be a true disciple and what it is to be a false disciple. There's another line. There's a line between being the hypercritical person who just finds something wrong with everybody and being discerning. The way Spurgeon liked to say it was that discernment is not the ability to determine right from wrong. It's the ability to determine right from almost right. And Satan is a master deceiver. And so, you know, he's not going to tempt people so much with that which is clearly wrong. He will for those who have no interest in that which is right. But for the person, especially the person who is growing in his or her willingness to understand things for what they actually are, that's the person that Satan is going to best attempt to deceive with the best counterfeit. And as uh, you grow in Christ, grow in your love for him, your love for the church, what you will find is that the folks that are deceived by that which is the best counterfeit are those who are angriest against that which is true, and will spend so much of their time and effort trying to dismiss, dispel, destroy the truth with almost truth. Last week, we saw that Jesus displayed confidence in his Father's wise will while defying his family's unwise counsel, and this was, of course, with the hope that you and I would do the same. The cultural Christianity of our day is not a lot different from what you're seeing in this text. Of course, these were Jews. John refers to them as the crowd, the people. And so the large mass of people who were willing to follow him either for the euphoria or for the satiation of their physical hunger ultimately would reject him. They ultimately would separate themselves From him. There was a substantial slice of the crowd that ditched him in the moment that he used the illustration of the eating of his flesh. And as we have said, Jesus goes along with these metaphors. He uses metaphors that will best display the inability of those who reject the theology that the metaphor represents. And as I've mentioned a number of times today, the the modern expression of that most prevalent is in the Roman Catholic organization, who, while rejecting the metaphor of the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus needing to be consumed by the faithful believer, rather than just completely rejecting it, they feign some sort of adherence to the Word of God, and so they twist it and say that it is to be literal. The Jews in that day took it literally. Well, the Roman Catholics today take it literally, but they mystify it by saying that the elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. It's not only idolatrous, it's just plain ridiculous they're honest with you, if you press them on that, tell me, you know, you should do this. If you're having a discussion with someone who's involved in Roman Catholicism and has that emotional attachment, which so many do, this is a good point to bring up, and I guarantee you they'll either dodge you or they'll misrepresent what the church teaches. My go-to is always the Council of Trent, which requires anathema or a curse be placed on the person who says that salvation is by grace alone. That's really the ultimate issue. That's what stands between us and Roman Catholicism. It's the matter of salvation by grace through faith alone versus salvation, they would say, by faith plus works. Any honest Roman Catholic will tell you that they rest in their own works in addition to the works of Christ. And you'll find that the more you engage that person, the more they will just stop making sense at all change the subject, move on to things, rather than dealing with the reality of the text of Scripture. Well, in Jesus' experience here in this section of John 7, which we were in last week, as I said, he defies the bad counsel from his brothers, whose counsel was based on their own anxiety. As they attempted to persuade him to go up to Judea, up to Jerusalem, he indicated to them, it's not time. If you want to go, go. But it's not my time. John makes it clear in verse 5. The problem was they weren't believers. They're biological brothers of Jesus. They are not spiritual brothers of Jesus. Verse 5 says, For not even his brothers believed in him. We took you to Mark 3 where it says that he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Further in that text says his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And this was his very, very clear way, not of abandoning his family. He had cared for his family and was faithful to his family, but this was simply to be honest. This was to speak the truth in love. So he said, in looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. You know Who's my real family? And and, and just so you know, just a a little bit of the theology behind our family group ministry, this is why we call them family groups. It's by no means an effort to replace your biological family. It's just to say that it's a different family. And for some of you, it's a, a mixture, right? Your biological family and your spiritual family, some of those people are the same people. So when we call it family group, we're not talking about biological families gathering together. In many cases, that is what happens. But the idea is that that is your spiritual Christian family. And many of you have so enjoyed the immense benefits of having that family group. Most of you have enjoyed that. Well, verse 6 went on to say, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. You want to go to Judea? You want to observe the Feast of Tabernacles? Involve yourself in that. Feel free. My time's not yet here. But then he says, the world cannot hate you. You you don't realize the world hates me. The world cannot hate you. Why? Because they don't believe in him. And this should be a warning to those who fit well into the world, especially if you're really comfortable being around worldly engagements those things that exalt man, those things that are deplorable to the Lord. Paul defines love so well in Romans 12, verse 9. He says, cling to what is good and hate what is evil. That really is a very distilled expression of what real love is. The more comfortable you realize you are around the world, the more you ought to be concerned about your soul. That's not to say that you should reject all worldly people, but you should have an evangelistic mindset. You know Do people know that you're a believer in the world? And listen, this is not what I'm asking when I ask that question. I'm not asking, do people know that you have some sort of a religious affiliation? Oh, yeah, that guy's a Christian, you know, I know because he goes to some church or something. That is not the question we're asking when we ask that. The question we're asking is, do you by grace and by faith, with love and with gentleness and with clear, bold, confident humility, display an utterly distinct character from those who are in the world and of the world? Jesus told us to be in the world but not of the world. So if you're comfortable, if you're satisfied with people just kind of knowing that you're a member of, of a Christian church, that is not what we're talking about here. The distinction is utterly different. People will be very uncomfortable sinning around you. They'll still do it, but they might say things like, oh, be careful what you do around him, and your response ought to be, don't be concerned about me, you should be concerned about Christ. You should be concerned about his Thinking about you, really his assessment or his judgment of you. Let's just look briefly at first John three. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. First John three, thirteen. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. He's saying that to brothers. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers whoever does not love abides in death everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him Now be careful that you don't let the pendulum swing so wide that you become that person who says well Jesus says that the world should hate me so I'm just going to you know do everything I can to encourage that and kind of be that person that's just really annoying you know, the person who goes to work and reads his or her Bible at work, you know, that is really dishonoring to the Lord. If you want a good understanding of how to honor the Lord in your workplace, read Colossians 3. You're to do your work, not your Bible reading, do your work as unto the Lord. That is the worst testimony that you could possibly have to do something other than what your boss wants you to do while you're at the workplace. And many times people falsely have this idea that they're being persecuted when really what's happening is their boss is upset with them because their boss is paying them to do something. And rather than doing that something, they're reading the Bible or talking about the Lord at work. Don't feel like that's persecution when your boss says, don't talk about the Lord at work. That's because he wants to make money. And that's what he should do because he owns the business. He has every right to want to make money, and he's paying you, right? The idea here that Jesus is speaking of in 1 John and in John 15 is that the world will hate us because of our righteousness. The more humble you become, the more uncomfortable the unbeliever and the false believer will be around you. In verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. Well, then you know somewhat shortly after that, he does go to Jerusalem. Point two last week was that Jesus displays bold confidence in his Father's wise will. So he wasn't driven by man's expectations on what to do or when to do it. He rested in the Father. He went up privately, not publicly. The Jews said, where is he? There was muttering amongst the people. Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And here you you have this really tragic reality that his biological brothers are kind of walking with him. They're benefiting from the practical, tangible blessings that they would receive from being associated with him, but they don't believe him. They disbelieve him. They reject who he really is and what he says about himself. This is maybe the most dangerous condition in which a person can find himself. Jesus calls these, in our environment, tears among the wheat, willing to kind of walk some sort of parallel life with Christ, with the body of Christ, but not really with the Christ of the Bible. It's all a game. It's a show. It's a a willingness to engage in appearances rather in legitimate Christ-honoring Christianity. Well, we saw a change when we turned to James chapter 2. And we saw that the patient willingness on Jesus' part to continue to minister to his brothers and sisters at least resulted in the salvation of James. As James says in his letter, James 2, in verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that ought to motivate you and me to be willing to hang in there, to keep persevering, to keep pursuing humility, to keep pursuing faithfulness, to keep looking to the Lord to produce in us conformity to his image, knowing that the Lord will save some. He will. You can be certain of that. He assures us that he will save some from every tribe, tongue, A nation. Those are the elect. We don't know who they are. We can't predict it. We shouldn't try. Paul didn't. Paul said he would have every Jew, right, all of his brethren be saved. He even said he would be willing to give up his place in heaven for them if he could, that he prayed for all of the brethren to be saved. And that's what you and I should pray. The person who best trusts in the sovereign elective work of Christ is the person who is the best, most faithful, most fervent evangelist. He knows God will save some, and he knows that he has no idea who they might be. So he's willing to be all things to all men. The person who rejects that doctrine is often the person who thinks that he can kind of scope it out. Oh, that person could never come to Christ. Look at how he acts. And so he treats him with condescension and anger and bitterness and disdain. He rejects that person as if that person somehow is less depraved than he was. Right? He thinks that he achieved something that that person should achieve. Yet when you and I adhere really to the, the whole of the Bible, but particularly Colossians chapter 3, which tells us, Beloved, You who are holy and chosen, have compassion. Be compassionate. Forgive others as God has forgiven you. Think of it. If you're going to be in that pattern of forgiving others based on their forgivability, you're not going to have any compassion for anybody. And you will say things like, I have no compassion for that group of people. Compassion is not about people deserving compassion. It's about the fact that they need compassion. And to whom should we show compassion? Everybody. Everybody. And that is driven by God's undeserved compassion for us. We, not deserving that compassion, received it. Why? Because he is a compassionate, forgiving God. We rest in his character. We rest in his ministry pursuits, and his ministry paradigm. We trust in him. So we saw so clearly that Jesus' bold confidence in his Father led him to continue to understand and pursue and trust in the Father's will. We'll see more of that in our text this morning. Look at chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. As I read aloud, you can read along silently. John 7, 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me Him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me, because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So this morning, we hope to see Jesus expose the wicked hearts of the Jewish crowd who accuse him of having a demon. So that we will exercise right judgment rather than judgment based on appearances. Discernment. It's absolutely critical for spiritual growth. And in many cases, a massive lack of discernment is displayed in the person who is the false convert. The person who is a disciple of Jesus, but an unconverted one. He's willing to follow for all the wrong reasons. And at some point, he will abandon Jesus. The question is not if. The question is when. Well, point number one, the one who wishes to do God's will discerns God's teaching. He discerns God's teaching. Verse 14 says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. This is, again, another bold move on the part of Jesus. But while it's bold, it's reflective of the fact that he had credibility. You know, the people were still interested in what he had to say. So going to the synagogue where people would be meeting, especially during the festival of booths, people would be there to hear truth. And somehow Jesus was able to work his way into the teaching so that people would actually hear truth rather than a misunderstanding of Jewish Old Testament truth. We don't know exactly when Jesus went to Jerusalem, but of course we know it was after his brothers. This teaching took place, as you know, relatively halfway through the festival that was going on at that time. So it says, the Jews therefore marveled. This doesn't necessarily mean that they were so impressed. It means that they were dumbfounded. They were in awe of what was happening here. And they said, how is it that this man has learning when he never studied? Had he been involved in Jewish culture that would have led to rabbinical learning and a rabbinical education, then they would have known about that. They would have known who had been in those circles, and they knew that he hadn't been in those circles. Some theologians speculate that what's being said here is, how does he even know how to read or write? I don't think that's a fair assessment of the text. I think clearly what's happening is they're marveling over the fact that he is displaying a significant understanding of Old Testament textual reality, whether or not they think he understands it or interprets it rightly. They're aware of the fact that he has some measure of knowledge, but that he hasn't been engaged in the rabbinical learning that most young Jewish boys would have been involved in. Similar to the crowds in Galilee in Matthew 7, 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Teaching is one who has authority. Now listen, the idea of teaching with authority is not that you beat people over the head with truth. The idea is that it's really clear you know what you're talking about. Paul warns about those in 2 Timothy 3 who speak about that which they understand nothing and they do so with confidence. So there are plenty of people who will speak boldly, but if you listen long enough and clearly enough, what you'll realize is they're going in circles. And they're probably saying the same things over and over, and there's no cumulative effect of careful verse-by-verse study of the Scripture that leads to increasing wisdom and increasing ability to be used of the Holy Spirit that people would be converted and people would be sanctified. These people were marveling, same as in Matthew. They were marveling over the fact that Jesus taught with confidence. Similarly, a a year later, Peter and John confounded the crowd, as we see testified in Acts 4.13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus showed himself to have substantial knowledge so did Peter and John. I remember years ago, I was very young at the time, and I was having some ministry involvement with a guy in a very charismatic church, and I told him I was getting ready to go to seminary, and he really chastised me for being willing to go to seminary. He said, you know what problem I've got with seminary? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, well, Paul and Peter and James and John, they never went to seminary. I said, you know, those guys wrote the Bible. Why would they go to seminary? You know, a man needs to be equipped. Second Timothy tells us so plainly, the workmen of God must be equipped, able, and adequate to handle the word of truth. Paul tells Timothy he must be able to divide the word of truth. He must not be ashamed. And so it's critical to be trained and to know what you're talking about. But these men walked with Jesus. They got their training From him. Where did Jesus get his training? He got it from his father, and the truth of the matter is, he is God in eternity past. I've told you about these uh, conversations I've been having online with a handful of folks who have abandoned the deity of Christ, one of whom espoused and taught the deity of Christ for many years, and he's rejected everything the Scripture says about Jesus' deity. Turn with me for a moment to John 17. I think this will be helpful for you because you'll run into people who will reject the deity of Christ. And so much of the New Testament displays the deity of Christ, and then there are passages that explicitly state the deity of jesus christ here's a passage that deals explicitly with his pre-existence at john 17 verse 4 i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that i had with you before the world existed and so the these folks that i'm dealing with simply Ignore Every time I bring this passage up, they simply ignore it. They're pretty good at putting spin on a lot of other passages that display the deity of Christ, but for the most part, their argument is from the humanity of Christ. They keep repeating passages that teach his humanity, and I keep saying, I'm not arguing that. I don't disagree that Jesus is very man, but Scripture teaches that he also is very God. And they repeatedly will say that he didn't exist. And they'll say things like, how can someone who already existed be born? And I say, hello, Nicodemus, right? That's the problem that uh, they display. They don't understand that which is earthly. How will they understand that which is heavenly? Well, verse 16 in our text says, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine. It's not mine. That's not to say that it's other than his. The point is that it's foundationally the Father's. And when we see things like this, what you ought to be thinking, where your mind ought to immediately go is to what we would call subordination. That the Son has subordinated himself to the Father. He is not in eternity past, subordinate to the Father, but he chose in his sonship to subordinate himself to the Father. We don't know all the ins and outs behind why the Trinitarian Godhead determined to do this, but we do know that it well displays for us what it looks like to trust a father. On Father's Day, of all days, what better text for us to be in? than this one that so clearly displays what it looks like for a son to be obedient to his father but in the godhead the determination in their ultimately perfect and eternally wise counsel the determination was that they would display as one god in three persons what it is for a person to trust his father Jesus took on full humanity and in doing so, there is absolutely no element, no ounce, no area in his life which we could look at and say, well, you know, I know he went through that, but he's God. Why can we not say that? Because he's man. His humanity is equally critically important for us as believers who would trust and follow him. You know, from the writer of. Hebrews that he is in every way like us yet without sin so it's the sinlessness of the God man that displays for us what it literally looks like to trust him but his deity is critical he would not be the Messiah if he is not God so again Jesus answered them my teaching is not mine but his Who sent me? He displays his trust in the Father, subjecting himself to the Father's will, to the Father's design. And see, the one who wishes to do God's will can discern what God's will is when he hears God's teaching. One of the saddest realities about the advent of the Internet is the way it has affected the church in that so many people think that because they can download something from the internet that that then enables them to slice and dice every pastor's teaching that they come across this is why it's so critical to be faithfully and deeply and interwovenly involved in a local church where you know someone's level of integrity You're not just kind of grabbing from here and there on the internet, listening to this guy and that. Well, I kind of like that guy. He's funny. I like this guy because he goes a little deeper. That guy, he's really colorful. You know, the New Testament shows absolutely nothing like that. What the New Testament reveals is a relationship-saturated involvement in a local church where elders are holding each other accountable, where the people are holding each other accountable, And if your pastor might say something that doesn't necessarily add up to what you already believe, you at least know he's trustworthy. And you know that he and you can work together and talk through things. This, again, is one of the reasons we have family groups where you have, in a very, very real sense, your own pastor in your your smaller family group. You have a biblically qualified elder, shepherd, who you can go to to talk through these things with. But the person who kind of comes just to sort of assess what he hears, to figure out how much of it he agrees with, there is absolutely no healthy involvement in anything like that at all. Obviously, for the person who's kind of scoping things out, he's new, he's checking out the church, listening to the teaching, that's a very, very big part of it. And when you hear false doctrine, when you hear heresy, then that's a time to say, wait a minute, did I hear that right? Right and start asking questions and listen more extensively. But the person who chooses to do God's will is the person who can discern teaching that is faithful to God's doctrines. You know, one of the great joys for me in my Christian walk is you. It's you. About 250 people in our church, and I can largely say that I'm surrounded by people people who show increasing humility spiritual growth sanctification i can say that all the way from young folks in our early high school ministry maybe even a handful in the junior high and on up you know we're not that church that baptizes people because they walk an aisle which you don't see in the bible you know we're trying to be faithful to the idea that a person who gives a profession of faith in Christ, does so, and immediately there's a hunger for righteousness. There's a passion for God's glory. It's flawed, right? It's a bumbling and stumbling. You know, they're not even a toddler yet. They're not even crawling. But you see a hunger for that which is pure and true and right. And so our duty, our obligation, our great privilege is to care for that spiritual infant carefully and gently and regularly providing discipleship, providing teaching, providing opportunities for confession of sin, and that we too would confess our sin so that the young believer would see what that looks like. And when I read verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. I'm never going to be able to speak on my own authority. Why would I do that? That would destroy everything the Lord has accomplished in our little church. I have no authority in your life. None. Zero. Absolutely none. The authority that I bear is the authority of Christ in his word. And by the way, you bear that authority in my life as well. We just have different gifts. And all of us must exercise those gifts, trusting in his authority. In John 5.19, you remember this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. The point was that not all truth had yet been disseminated there was going to be more truth many more miracles many more signs all those things ceased in their proper timing uh, but jesus made it clear that many more great works would be done john 6:57 as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me again i'm showing you passages where jesus displays the fact that the person who is interested in the will of god right? He's truly interested in that which is going to glorify God, that which will please God, that which will honor God, legitimate obedience to his word. That person lives for him. And he's known by that. John 14:9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. He was saying to Philip, you know, you've got what you need in me. You're asking for some additional sort of epiphanal experience where you might see the Father. Philip, come on. Have you not been paying attention? How long have I been with you? It was a reasonable question verse 17 says if anyone's will is to do god's will see that if anyone's will is to do god's will he will know whether the teaching is from god or whether i am speaking on my own authority john 6 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him jesus defers to the father's will he defers to the father's will It's the Father having chosen in eternity past. Jesus does the work of ministry. And what will he do? He will raise them up on the last day. But the Father has drawn them to him. And we would say truth is self-authenticating. True believers love true teaching. People genuinely committed to doing the will of God not only want to hear truth they know the difference they know the difference they know when they're being fed and when they get into a rhythm of being fed then they're no longer willing to sit under teaching that doesn't feed them teaching that only satisfies self-esteem rather than satiating the nearly insatiable hunger for the glory of Christ John 10.33, looking forward, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So not only is Jesus saying that he is not doing his will, but the Father's will, he's pointing the reality that he and the Father are one. This is not the only time where they attempt to kill him in response to his having claimed to be god they want him dead jesus repeatedly is willing to subject himself to that which might ultimately result in his death but as you know in the context of this text there's a little bit of a shift here he has separated himself from the public venue he's gone up privately but now he's in the synagogue now he's teaching publicly this is very public Verse 18 says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So he's in this public venue now where he can make this bold statement. The one who wants the glory of God to be on display, the one who wants to do the will of God is the one who's going to receive my teaching. And he's about to get very bold with them where he says the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. It ought to make us think back to passages in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Aren't the Proverbs just amazingly, succinctly powerful? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He just thinks he's right. He just wants to hear himself talk. He just wants to say things that he thinks are right. And many times what he's doing is he's testing the listener. The listener doesn't give a nod of affirmation, then he knows he's got more work to do. But if there's any kind of rejection at all, he certainly doesn't do this. He certainly doesn't listen to advice. He simply wants to promote his own way of thinking. He's not only not able to discern sound teaching, he's just not interested. And I've seen this happen over the years. I've seen this happen in, in certain people's lives where they display that hard-hearted disinterest in hearing or understanding God's truth. They only listen to whatever they listen to for the sake of dissecting it so they can say what they think is really true. But I've seen this a number of times over the years where that changes. A man's heart suddenly becomes soft and all of a sudden he's, he's actually asking questions. He's actually showing an interest in understanding God's teaching. He wants to do God's will. That's the work of regeneration. That's one of the hallmark signs of the new Christian. He's actually interested in hearing truth. Number two, point number two, I want you to see that the one who wishes to do his own will discerns poorly. I want you to think about your own tendencies for a minute. Back to point one. The one who wishes to do God's will discerns God's teaching. That's a hard attitude that says, I want God's will. My will is clearly not best, unless, of course, I have subjected myself, yielded myself to God's will. But the person who's done social gymnastics and really spiritual gymnastics to take a scenario that is clearly dishonoring to the Lord... And candy coat it with twisting of scripture and whatever else. That is not a person who's interested in doing God's will. And so he doesn't discern godly or God honoring teaching. Search your own heart in regard to this. You know, one of the things that ought to be happening, really the impetus of this text, is that you and I would, would grow spiritually, that we would become increasingly discerning with regard to the spiritual condition of others. But you've got to start with your own spiritual condition. You've got to be willing to examine your own heart and ask the question, when I get involved in a situation where truth is challenged or truth is even the object of the discussion, what's happening in my own heart? Is it my passion that God's will be done, or do I just want to be right? Am I so committed to what I have believed I feel like my role in this situation is to prove somebody else wrong, or rather, is it your desire to do God's will? If that's true about you cumulatively over the years, and you're growing in that desire, then you're growing in that ability. You're becoming more and more mature. You're Being humbled and the Lord is going to use you more extensively if in fact that's your desire. But you really must assess the reality of where your heart is with regard to this, even in this moment. Ask yourself, is that what I've been thinking this morning? Have I been thinking about God's will? Or am I thinking about what I can get out of this? The one who wishes to do his own will discerns Poorly. Some discerning, but it's bad discernment. It's wrong discernment. It's not discernment. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And, folks, if that describes you, then be frightened. And I really mean that. Be eternally frightened. The wrath of God abides on you. If you are rightly described as that person who's just not interested in being taught. When I have the privilege to sit under somebody else's teaching, I'm thinking about listening and learning. Obviously at the point where I hear something that I don't quite understand, I'm going to look for an opportunity to ask a question when God has placed somebody in my life in a position of leadership and teaching, I am all about absorbing what they have to say, not listening and believing blindly, obviously testing it against Scripture, but that's my moment of growth. You know when one of those moments is is when one of you's been baptized and I stand there in the baptistry with you and I'm listening to you communicate the power of the gospel in a fervent, newly regenerate way. You're excited, and you want so much to communicate the power of the gospel because you've got unbelieving family members who are here to hear that from you. Or even when I read a testimony from a new member, I'm looking at that absorbing it. I'm drinking it in. I'm being awestruck by the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. A person who just wants to say what he thinks. What a horrible indictment. There's more hope for a fool than for him. The point is that he's worse than a fool. Verse 19 in our text, As, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. They speak to the crowd here, right? This is not the Jewish leadership at this point. None of you keeps the law. You know you don't keep the law. Let's be honest. John 5:45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The testimony of the lives of the people of Israel was that they didn't follow the law. Not really. They certainly didn't follow it with any degree of perfection. But his point was to say that you reject the law. You reject the word of God. And the main reason I know is that you're rejecting me. Moses spoke to you about me. If you really believed in the law of God, the word of God, as depicted by Moses, you would have embraced me. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. See, that's the person who wishes to do God's will and discerns his teaching, but the person who wishes to do his own will and therefore discerns poorly is not really interested in the law of God for understanding the law of God. He's interested in the law of God only as a tool by which to refute what someone else has to say First Samuel 15 You see this in magnificent expression First Samuel 15:1 Samuel said to Saul The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord you know, you and I would do well to receive Samuel's admonition, to listen to the words of the Lord. And you would have thought that Saul would have received that well. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. And so he gives him specific instruction. It's, It's as clear as can be. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, This is Samuel talking to Saul on behalf of the Lord, right? Now, verse 3, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Clear instructions. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. So you think Saul's on track here. It would seem as if he is intending to do God's will. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. That's a rather convenient way to respond to God's clear commands, isn't it? You might even say picking and choosing the degree to which they wanted to apply God's clear commands. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And you've heard me say this before. In my opinion, this is one of the saddest narratives in all the Bible And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Don't let this be a story. Don't let this be some Old Testament narrative that has no impact on your heart this very moment. Ask yourself, am I that person who desires to do the will of God and therefore I understand and I embrace and I rightly receive the teaching of God or am I on the other hand the one who wishes to do his own will and therefore discerns poorly at the very least be willing to examine your own heart that the Lord would bless you even if you're not yet at that place where the Lord might bless you with the ability to bless others by exercising discernment in their life What is it in your own life where you just might be willing to pursue that which you think is right and yet when it becomes inconvenient for you, you color it and you change it? Your assessment of God's word and your assessment of your own life is quite convenient. Never wanting to go fully into that which God Requires This was Saul. And you see that Saul has dumbed down. Really, he has salved his own conscience because he looks at Samuel and he says to him, blessed be you to the Lord, and he lies to him. He says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. See, that's the searing of the conscience. And he felt that he could pull the wool over Samuel's eyes. Samuel said, What an amazing question. What an amazing way in which Samuel addresses this where he says, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? What would the right response have been? The right response would have been, Samuel, you're right, I failed. I've disobeyed the Lord. I dishonored you. I dishonored Israel. I've been a fool. Please help me. Please help me to engage in repentance. No, that's that's not Saul's response. Saul said, "They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction." Can you say self-righteousness? What is self-righteousness? Well, it's most often depicted in a willingness to have a heightened view of your own disposition in rejection of God's. I don't need God's righteousness because I have my own. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Talk about blame-shifting. Not only is he blaming it on the people who obeyed his commands, now he's turning it back on Samuel. It's for your God, Samuel. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now, this isn't the end of it. This isn't just about Saul being demoted. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Oh, now you're sorry. Now that discipline, now that recourse has been applied, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Again, blaming it on them. Still, this is not repentance. Somehow it's somebody else's fault. Verse 25, Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord. This is a spiritual principle that has permeated God's relationship with people since he created man unto today. The issue is a willingness to obey the word of the Lord. I will not return with you, he says. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, "'The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day "'and has given it to a neighbor of yours "'who is better than you. "'And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, "'for he is not a man that he should have regret.'" Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Did you ever notice that? Agag came to him cheerfully. Why do you think that might have happened? I think two reasons. I think Agag is no longer convinced, certainly at this point not convinced that he is subject to God's law, that he somehow being king must have gained favor. Well, he had gained favor with an ungodly man, but he didn't know Samuel. I think the other reason is that he's a manipulator. If he can be kind enough in the moment... Maybe he thinks that Samuel will forget all the atrocities that the Amalekites committed against defenseless infants. But no, no. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Some have asked me, why do you think he cut him into bits? Well, I don't know that he cut him into bits, but he certainly made it clear that he was dead. This is a certain execution. No one might have wondered whether or not Samuel obeyed the word of the Lord. That this is so often what happens in irresponsible men's lives because they refuse to obey the word of the Lord godly men step in for them and the sad reality is that often the man who watches as another man steps in to obey the word of the Lord he never comes to repentance a text tells us then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death But Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Chapter 16, verse 1 gets very interesting. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And this is, in fact, what... Sometimes happens in the life of the man who continues to reject the word of God. He shows himself disinterested in God's true will, therefore unable to discern God's teaching, but rather just interested in his own will. Just interested in doing that which is going to bring him pleasure. Just interested in doing that which is going to exalt him. That's going to cause at least a handful of people around him to think that he actually is doing something that's useful. You can see this as a living depiction of what it looks like to be a person who discerns very poorly. Very inadequately. Only conveniently. Only picking and choosing that which he thinks is just enough to honor the Lord enough that he would shine on him and that he would show him good pleasure. Let's look quickly at verse 24 in our text and then we'll finish with this. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Lord commands us to judge. And in the context of what we're looking at, we're dealing with a group of people who misjudged the person of Jesus. Now, it's a sad reality when a person misjudges the person of Jesus, but when then he takes that and he deceives others. This is the person that causes me the most consternation. I understand when people who sit in the church week after week who listen to bad teaching are not discerning. But the person who teaches the falsehood, who teaches something other than the fact that no one comes to me lest the Father draw him. That all that the Father have given me will come unto me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast them out. See, this is the context. This critical, fundamental truth about the sovereign grace of God is that which often separates the sheep from the goats. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What's happening with the masses is that they have an assessment of Jesus that is wrong. And so he says to them, in your wrong assessment of Me, judge rightly, not based on appearance. In Matthew 7, judge not that you not be judged is not the final statement. Jesus there goes on to say, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that the speck is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then this, this is a call to judgment. He says, do not give dogs What is holy? Before you can refrain from giving something holy to a dog, you must first determine that he is a dog spiritually. That's the idea. He is someone who rejects truth. He says, don't give it to them, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And then he says this, and this is the hopeful note we'd wish to end on. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. him isn't that beautiful here where jesus has made it clear that the problem with the masses is that they wrongly assess him they reject the hard truths the harder the theology gets the clearer he gets about it and those who are willing to reject that truth he ultimately says they will abandon me and they do it's a chip at a time But the grace and the love and the kindness and the mercy of Jesus Christ is such that for those who are children of God, if you will ask of him, he will give it to you. He is your father. For those of you who are in Christ, those of you who are children of God, he will give you discernment. He will enable you to judge rightly rather than judge on appearances. And you can do that with grace and compassion, even as Jesus does, so that you might be used effectively evangelistically, that God would be glorified in your life. And the result would be that people would come to know him as a result of knowing you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your perfect word. We pray that you continue to use it. Lord, we ask that it might scathe our hearts, that we would see it for what it is, that we would be changed by it. Lord, we ask ultimately that you would help us to judge rightly, that we would be used effectively for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.